thinking about that phrase, your name is higher than the rising sun. The temptation, as we talked about last week, is to do what the people in Babylon did, in the Tower of Babylon. Remember, they were making a tower. You remember what they were trying to do? Make a name for themselves. Make a name for themselves. And so we're not trying to make a name for ourselves. We're trying to lift up a name the name that is above every other name, and that's Jesus. We're going to do that this morning by looking at 1 Samuel. Uh, and if you are not familiar with what we do here, we're trying to read through the Bible, and it's helpful for you to have your Bible open in front of you. And we're going to be reading several different passages because this is more of an overview. So if you could start at chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, page 237, if you have a blue Bible in front of you. And then once you find that... Turn to Psalm 57, Psalm 57, and that's page 477. Joseph mentioned it, but in case you're a visitor here this morning, we're really trying to land the plane. We're trying to land the plane on 2 Samuel chapter 11. And what happened is a year ago, because of COVID, we were Just about ready to get to 2 Samuel 11, but because of COVID, I felt like we needed to take the exit ramp and talk about some things that were happening at at that moment. And last week, we got on the on-ramp, and we looked at the three three critical, crucial characters in 1 Samuel, and that was Hannah and Samuel, the last prophet, the last judge, uh, or the last judge, a prophet, and then Saul, the first king. And today we're going to look at the main character, and that is David. David. David's not only the main character in First and Second Saul uh, Samuel. He's he's one of the main characters in the Bible. And when we take a look at David, it's a, it's also a massive shift that that's happening in the Bible that we want to know about. First of all, David is the great king of God's people, Israel. He's the one that follows Saul. God refers to David as a man after God's own heart. We'll see that in a minute. The key verse in all of these two books, First and Second Samuel, is in chapter 7. And God says this to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. See, there's going to be somebody in David's family tree that's going to have a kingdom that gets established by God. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him as a father, and he shall be to me as a son. We all know who that person is. It's Jesus. He's the king of kings. So when you turn to the New Testament... When the king of kings arrives, the very first line in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, comma, the son of David. So you hear it. You, he, God's making this promise. He's turning a corner and he's fashioning a king, a king that has a, a heart after God. And David, as we're going to find out, and you already know, he's not the king, the perfect king. And so we need to, we're going to end up looking for another king, and that's going to be Jesus. Then in the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, one of the very last statements that Jesus makes in the Bible, he says this, I am the root and offspring of David. 
It's a way of him, of him saying, I'm the true king. I, I'm not only the king from David, I'm the king that gave birth to David. It's this huge uh, culmination in Revelation chapter 22. So David's a key character in the Bible. And I want to examine David's life here in 1 Samuel, and next week we'll do it in 2 Samuel until we get to uh, chapter 11. This morning I want to do it by looking, thinking about these three things. What God sees what God sees. Secondly, David as a shadow. And third, from king to cave. Let's explain those three things. What God sees, chapter 15 and 16. When you get to chapter 15, you're in the middle of the book of 1 Samuel, and Samuel has been this faithful prophet, but he's at rock bottom. You might say uh, he has to look up to see rock bottom. He, he's, he's just in such a terrible space, and we're going to see it here as I read, and you follow along with me, chapter 15, verses, starting with verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul the king. Why would God say that? For he has turned, he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry. And he cried out to the Lord all night. And then Samuel rose early to go meet Saul in the morning. And it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, a key city. And behold, he set up a monument for himself. He set up a monument. He was trying to make a name for himself. Verse 26, same chapter. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Finally, verse 35. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the low point. This is... This is the bottom of the valley for Samuel. And we can appreciate Samuel's grace. Up until chapter 15, he had uh, invested so much time and energy first into the people of Israel. He was the one who had brought this sort of chaos of judges into some sort of uh, creative a collection of people following after God. But then as they, they sort of started to slip away, they said, well, we want a king. We want to be like everybody else. So he had sort of spent his early leadership on these people who actually didn't want to follow after God. So Saul comes along. And then the best of Samuel's leadership years, he pours into Saul only to find out that Saul is going to reject God as the king as well. And so we see in chapter 15, verse 11, Samuel was angry. Some commentators ask, well, what what do you think Samuel was angry at? What what birthed Samuel's anger? Here are some possibilities. Well, he's angry at the people. I mean, if they hadn't rejected God as the king, we'd never have to get to Saul, and therefore we wouldn't have got this, this place. So he could have been angry at the people. Certainly could have been angry at Saul. I mean, Saul had won this great victory at the hands of the Lord, and then he comes back, he sets up a monument to himself. I mean, this is going to infuriate Samuel for Saul, and then God's walking away, and so Samuel might have just been angry at himself. 
He's wasted what feels like his whole life pouring into these two different groups of people only to be disappointed. And now he's an old man in chapter 15. He doesn't have much leadership capacity left and he might feel like he's just wasted his life. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. Maybe, maybe, maybe Samuel's angry at God. I mean, why did you choose Saul? Couldn't you have made a better choice? See, lots of ways Samuel could be angry here. Whatever the reason, Samuel is angry. He's so angry, he can't see anything else. And I wonder if you've been in that place where you're so disappointed about what's happened. You're so angry, you're angry at everybody. You ever been in that situation? You kick the dog, everybody, I mean, everybody, I mean, just anger is pouring out because you had some hope, you had some dream, and it got traded in for disappointment. And now you're just angry. You're what in what I like to call the frame of pain. You've probably heard me to describe this before. The frame of pain. Let's think about if you're hammering something and you hit your thumb instead of the nail, what happens? Everything gets reduced to your thumb right? You don't think about anything in the world. You don't think about anything in your body. You're all focused on just this one little digit. You're in a frame of pain. Something so painful has happened, it shrinks your world into one frame. And you're no longer in a, in a flowing movie script. You're just stuck in one frame. And if you're not careful, that pain can freeze you in that frame forever. Because what happens when you get into the frame of pain, not with your thumb, but emotional pain, is you take that frame and you say this, I know you've done this, this is going to last forever. And you stretch that pain from 57 to 87, whatever you say, it's just never going to be, I'm always going to feel this kind of pain, I can't seem to get out of it. And you can get stuck there, you can get frozen there. And Samuel's in great danger of getting frozen in this frame of pain. You see it in chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Now fill your horn with oil and go and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, he's from Bethlehem. For I have provided, and that word in the Hebrew provided actually means seize. I see for myself a king. I see for myself a king. See, Samuel, he's getting sucked into this frame of pain, and God comes along to say, Hey, Samuel, I know you can't see outside of this frame of pain, but I can see. And I need you to trust me inside of your frame that I can see the whole movie play out and you need to get up and go. You need to get outside of this frame. You need to move away from this frame even though you're still in pain and trust me that I see something that you don't see. This word provide, which is really the word see, you see it all the time in this little passage, although in the English it gets translated in different words like provide. It's used nine times in this little passage. 
So God wants Samuel to, to trust that he sees something. Let's look at verse 7, chapter 16. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look upon his appearance or the height of his stature. Samuel is now in Bethlehem with Jesse, and he's seen one of his sons who looks impressive. Because I've rejected that one, for the Lord sees, not as a man sees. The man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord sees. He sees on the heart. This is what God sees. He, got, he sees the future. Such a great verse. I see for myself a king. I, I see the heart of people. Samuel, I know you can't see in your frame of pain. I know you're stuck in your frame, but you need to trust me and move forward. And I love this encouragement that God comes along, Samuel, this old man who may feel angry at himself, angry at everybody, and he comes in kindly. I know you're in a pain, frame of pain. I know you can't see anything but this pain. But you have to trust me that I see something. And based on me seeing something, God, Samuel, you need to move forward. It's important because everybody here is going to experience their own frame of pain. You're going to have your moment of darkness and anger. And if you're not careful, it might consume your whole life. I've known people who were in a painful moment and then I see their lives play out and they never got past the painful moment. I'm not saying they, they would forget about it, but it, it, it just shaped their whole life. They never really got out of that pain. And you have to trust God to move forward. And one of the things that I think is so important, so critical about this one point, beyond that God sees is that Samuel dies before David is ever really the king. When Samuel dies, David's on the run. Doesn't look like he's going to be king. He's actually living in a cave. And it just says, Samuel dies. Samuel has to trust that the fruit of his faithfulness isn't going to blossom until after he's dead. This is so important for all of us. Because I'm wired. I don't know if you're wired this way. But this, this, and just imagine if, you can't ima- if, you, if you're struggling with this. That when you hear some promise of God, you expect it to happen like tomorrow. That's, his, that's the leash that I give God. Okay, God, you're going to get me out of this frame. I'd like to be completely out of the frame, let's say, 24 hours from now. I want to see and hear a promise of God and then just completely get out of it and say, that's it. And that's not how God's work. His his ways aren't our ways. Uh, A a day for a, a thousand years for God is like one day for us. He has a totally different time set than we do. And the fruit of Samuel's faithfulness to say, I'm willing to go forward... And, and anoint somebody who's going to be king, and then watch as David's on the run, and just trust God's going to have fruit after my death. Some of you are asking to do something very hard right now to trust the Lord, to just be faithful. And maybe in your lifetime, you'll see that fruit blossom. 
in a week, a year, maybe in 20. But for many of us, we're not going to see the fruit of our faithfulness until the very end of the film, which would be long after our death. And God is asking you today, trust me that I see. Even though you've been faithful for 15 or 20 years and it just doesn't seem to have paid off, trust me, he sees. And you too will see, but it won't be in this lifetime. It'll be after your lifetime. Samuel's a great picture of faithfulness. He trusts that God sees the whole film strip, even when he's stuck in his frame of pain. Secondly, David now is a shadow. Now, you've heard me talk about this many times, but when you're reading the Old Testament or you're reading the Bible, you need to think about it as one big story. It's not an old story and a new story. It's not a bunch of little stories like 66 books or 66 stories. It's one big overarching story. And in the Old Testament, there are shadows that lead to Christ. Be like if you walk out here and you see the sun on a tree. You could follow the shadow and you're going to end up at the tree. And the Old Testament has all these shadows. And if you follow the outline of the shadow, you're going to end up seeing Jesus. And the shadow in the Old Testament really begins in Genesis chapter 3, 15. The offspring of the woman. This is God's promise. The offspring of the woman will one day crush the head of the serpent. The offspring of the woman. The woman's going to give birth to somebody who's going to have the power to crush the head, to crush the power, to crush evil. This is a key verse in the whole Bible. And so as you read the Bible and you come to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, then you spend the rest of your time leaning forward saying, well, who is this person? Who is this leader that's going to come? Is, is it uh, Cain or Abel? Is it Seth? Is it Noah? Is it Abraham? Is it Jacob? I mean, who is this person you keep leaning for? Is it David? That somebody's going to come. And this somebody's going to have the power to crush the head of evil. And in 1 Samuel, the writer wants you to make a connection between some of the stories in 1 Samuel and Genesis chapter 3. Let me give you some examples. First of all, in chapter 5, which we don't have time to, to really read and review, but some of you remember the story, the Ark of the Covenant, this is where God sits and meets with his people, had been stolen or sort of hijacked from the Israelites and taken to Philistine, enemy territory. And you remember what they did with the Ark of the Covenant? They put it in their temple. Dagon is the name of their, their god. It's a half, half fish and half man. And when they put the Ark of the Covenant in there, sort of at the feet of Dagon, they come back the next morning. You remember what happened? The statue of Dagon had tipped over, and guess what had been cut off? His head. His head had been severed. It's a little shadow of saying, God has the power to sever the head of evil. Chapter 31, Saul had definitely walked away from God. He decided his name was above every name. He would be the kingdom. He would be the king of the kingdom. And in chapter 31, he dies. The Philistines come. And you know what they do? They chop off his head. Now, there are other references in 1 Samuel to this, but the best reference is one you'll be familiar with, and that is chapter 17. So let's look at that, David and Goliath. 
you know the story. There's a plain where there's a big battle that's going to happen, and there's sort of these mountains, or you might think rolling hills. And on each side of the rolling hill is an army. It's the God's people, the Israelites, and the Philistines, the enemies. And the Philistines come up with this great game plan. You can imagine. Let's just send out one person. And whoever wins this one-on-one wins the whole battle. And why did they think that was a good idea? Well, they have a giant. And so they send out Goliath. And day after day, he comes out to this field and say, just send any person, pick your biggest guy, whatever. And, and for, I think it was 40 days, this happens. And he just taunts the Philistines until David, who's a little shepherd boy, probably a teenager, he shows up in chapter 17. And you know the picture. He gets five smooth stones. And he's great with his slingshot. Now, let's just try to imagine here in verse 5, chapter 17. This is describing Goliath. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. So he's got this pointy bronze helmet. He was armed with a coat of mail. You know what that is? Looks like little scales, little hooks from his neck all the way down to his knees. What would that look like? That would look like a serpent. And the serpent comes out to taunt God's people day after day. Chapter 17, verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. When David ran and took over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out and killed him by cutting off his head. He's cutting off the head of the serpent. Skip down to verse 55. As soon as Saul Saul, saw David go out and kill the Philistine, he said to his commander, Abner, Abner, whose son is this? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I don't know. Verse 56. And the king said, well, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul. With the head of the Philistine in his hand. I mean, this is kind of a gruesome story, is it not? He goes out, he chops Goliath's head off. The commander comes in and says, hey, can you meet Saul? Yeah, I'm going to keep the head. And he walks into this tent with a head, and Saul, and, he said, and Saul says to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant from Bethlehem. I'm the king from Bethlehem who can cut off the head of the servant. You see who this is? This is Jesus. This is an Old Testament shadow that when you see Jesus and then you go back, you say, yes, I've seen him already here in David. It's a picture of the true king, Jesus. So David is, David is the king that God sees. David is a king after God's own heart. David is the king who's going to cut off the head of the serpent. And David goes from being anointed king is for, from Samuel to a king that lives in a cave, point number three. When you turn to chapter 18, the future looks bright for everything. Everything's for David. Everything's up and to the right for David. 
And then all the wheels come off. Everything collapses around David because Saul becomes insanely jealous and actually tries to put David to death several different times. And in order to escape, David has to live in a desert with his men, basically living in caves. He's a king now living in a cave. You might say David is now in his own frame of pain. Now, how do you move forward when your dreams turn into disaster? That's this last question I want to address. David's now in his own frame. How do you move forward? David has to learn how to move out of his frame of pain. One Christian artist talks about this. Sarah Grove, she sings. Let's, first of all, let's look at Psalm 57. Psalm 57. Notice there's a little title to the psalm. To the choir master, according According to do not destroy at Miriam of David when he fled from Saul and lived in a cave. So this is his song while he was living in a cave. This is his song. And Sarah Groves, a Christian writer, contemporary Christian writer, she writes this in her song. Speak to me in my cave. Reach to me when no one cares for my soul. I thought I saw your kingdom, but it's not going to happen like I thought it would happen. You ever been there? I had this dream. It was a good dream. There's nothing wrong with it. But now it's not going to happen like I thought it was going to happen. And how do you live now in a cave faithfully for the Lord? How do you press on? That's the question I'm asking. Because from chapter 18 to the end of the book in 1 Samuel, David now lives his whole life 10 years in a cave. How do you live when your dreams dissolve into disappointment? Two, two things I'm just going to mention here. One, people. I wish I had enough time to go through so many intersections that David has with critical people that really help him in, in large and small ways. But if you're living in a cave, when your dreams turn disaster, you can't live there very long by yourself without going crazy. And two times, David runs into priests, chapter 21 and chapter 23. And each time, these priests take a big risk to reach out to David. David comes in hurting. He needs help. And the priests, the people of God, make a big effort to help David. So that's one place you should be. You should be in a church where when you come in and you say, I'm living in a cave, Somebody's going to get in the cave with you. So let me just say as members of Christ Community Church, people are going to come in and their lives are going to be very disappointing. Their dreams are going to turn into a disaster. And, and it won't always be Paul Phillips. It might be you because you're sitting next to them. They're, you're in your, they're in your small group. They're your friend group. And you're going to need to get into a cave and say, I'm going to, I'm going to help you walk out of the cave. David needs people from the church. He also needs a friend. Chapter 23, turn there with me. My favorite book person in the whole of 1 Samuel is a guy named Jonathan who happens to be Saul's son. And oddly, Jonathan and Saul, Jonathan and David have this very close friendship. 
And David's in a difficult spot in chapter 23, verse 15. David saw that Saul that Saul had come out to seek his life. Chapter 23, verse 15. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David and strengthened his hand in the Lord. Such a beautiful picture. David's hands are slipping off the Lord. He's in a cave. He can't seem to make any headway. And he needs somebody to come in and grab his hands and grab the Lord's hands. And say, I'm going to hold on to your hands and the Lord's hands until you can hold on by yourself. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And that's what you need, and that's who you need to be. At some point, you're going to need somebody to come in and say, I'll take hold of your hands, and I'll hold strongly enough for two of us. You're going to need that. You're going to need to be that person. Where you walk into a life of disappointment. And say, hey, I'm going to hold on for both of us until you can hold on for yourself. Second thing that you need to get out of this cave is not just people, but you need praise. What you're seeing in, in a cave is Psalm 57. Look at that with me, verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. You sing humbly. You cry out for mercy. You realize I'm not deserving of the Lord's attention. Secondly, you sing hopefully. I cry out to the Lord Most High, to the God who fulfills his purpose for me. The word fulfills means finish. So important in times of distress to sing the truth into your soul that God's not finished with me. You can get into a frame of pain and feel like God's finished. I'm finished. And David sings the truth. He could, he could feel that, so he's singing the truth. It's not a pep talk, it's a truth talk. He's pushing the truth into his soul, saying, God's ultimately in charge. He's not yet finished with me. And some of you are in a cave right now, and you need to make this your prayer. God, I know you have purposes I know you're not finished. And so I'm going to sing this song, Psalm 57. Last point here. At the cross, Jesus, his soul is in a dark cave. What does he do? He sings a song. He sings the son of David sings a song of David on the cross. Did you know that? Psalm 22. David had written this song 1,000 years ago, and here Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he's singing David's song. Now, you don't get the whole song because when you're hanging on a cross, you're suffocating. So you can't sing too much. So you just sing a little phrase, a verse to let people know, this is the song I'm singing in my head even when I can't breathe. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, that's not just a statement. That's part of a song. That's a lyric in the line of a song. It's letting people know that I'm singing this song. Well, what does the song actually say? Let me just read you a few verses. Why are you so far from saving me, God? Yet 
You are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered. They cried out and they were saved. And in you I trust and I will not be disappointed. You hear that? It's not just a phrase. He's singing this whole song. And at the very end of the song, there will be descendants who serve him. A generation that will be told about the Lord. They will tell people yet to be born about this person's righteousness, Jesus. And notice that God has finished it. What is Jesus' last word on the cross? It is finished. See, it's part of a song. How do you live through a cave? How do you press on? You sing the truth into your soul that God isn't finished. He's fulfilling his purposes. When we look at David, we want to remember that God sees. Even in the lowest point for Samuel, God sees a way out. And our role is just to be faithful in that moment. And you may be in that place right now. You're in that frame of pain and it just feels like it's going to last forever. It's not going to last forever. God sees. When we see David, we want to not see through David and see Christ. When we see David, we see a king who had a lot of disappointment. Disappointment and David were close friends. And how does he get through that? He sings. He has people to remind him of the song of truth. That God isn't finished. I hope you know. I hope you really know. That God isn't finished with you either. Let's pray together. Lord in this past year. Most everyone's been in some kind of. Frame of pain. And wondered what you were doing. Wondered what you were doing with the pandemic. What you were doing with issues around race. What you were doing with politics. What you were doing with the economy. What you were doing with our personal lives. Our health. Our own personal economy. So many things have caused us to get into these frames. And I pray that we would know. Even though it's painful. And maybe continues to be painful. It's not the last frame. You're not finished. You see things. And would you build into our souls a trust to step into the next frame? And even if we just step faithfully and you don't provide what we had hoped in our lifetime, we can trust that the fruit of our faithfulness can blossom well after we're gone. And we will give you praise for that. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.